This is Our American Stories, and it's time for our special presentation on the life of the most famous magician and illusionist of all time. Jesse Edwards brings us the story of the great Harry Houdini. We begin the story of Harry Houdini, the most famous magician the world has ever known, on the night of October 31st, 1936, on the rooftop of the Nickenbacher Hotel in Hollywood, California. Ten years to the day after Houdini died on Halloween of 1926. Tonight, we are in the very heart of glamorous Hollywood that Houdini loved so well. He lived here, he worked here, Houdini loved Hollywood. It's the Houdini night with the spotlight of the public on Houdini. With the whole world paused to see our dear Houdini step on this side of the curtain. The great Houdini had made a pact with his wife Bess that he would make every attempt to communicate with her as a spirit from beyond the grave after he was dead. So, every year, on Halloween, the widow of Harry Houdini held a seance for him on the night of his departure for the next ten years without ever making contact. In this, the tenth and final official seance for Harry Houdini, gold invitations were sent to some 300 guests and reporters. Lights as far away as New York were dimmed and one minute of silence was observed as the ceremony began in prayer. Now, let us bow our heads in meditation and prayer. O thou master mind of the universe, please let the spirit of understanding descend upon us that are gathered here in the inner circle tonight. We are each in his own way seekers after truth, and we offer our grateful thanks to thee. Guide us, please. Amen. A table with Houdini's handcuffs was set near the edge of the roof, with the Hollywood sign as the prominent dramatic backdrop lit up in the distance of the Halloween night. Now, the final plea for the great Houdini to appear in spirit form. Oh, thou disembodied spirits, those of you that have grown old in the mysterious laws of spirit land, we greet thee. It is the spirit of Houdini we wish to contact. Houdini, are you here? Are you here, Houdini? Please manifest yourself in any way possible. Take from this earnest gathering any strength that may be necessary for you to use. Take any vital thing from us that you may need to enable you to carry out your promise of years ago. We have waited, Houdini, oh so long. Never have you been able to present the evidence you promised. And now, this is a night of night. The world is listening. Harry, your world, your audience. We are crying to high heaven. To the powers that be. We are crying in one mighty magnetic voice from every corner of the earth. And the hearts and minds of the multitudes are centered here tonight. We want the evidence, the truth. In the name of humanity and love, if there is communication from the great beyond, come through with the evidence. Yet again, like ten times before, Houdini did not come through from the other side. His wife, Bess, had no other choice but to concede. Mrs. Houdini, the 
hour has passed. The ten years are up. Have you reached a decision? Yes. Houdini did not come through. My last hope is God. I do not believe that Houdini can come back to me or to anyone. After faithfully following through the ten-year Houdini compact, using every type, medium, and theos, it is now my personal and positive belief that spirit communication in any form is impossible. I do not believe that ghosts or spirits exist. The Houdini Shrine has burned for ten years. I now reverently turn out the light. It is finished. Good night, Harry. For ten years, Bess presided over these well-publicized seances. Though she stopped participating in 1938, not a single Halloween has passed since without an official Houdini seance held by magicians somewhere in the world as homage to the great Houdini. Which is somewhat ironic, considering that Harry Houdini was well known for his efforts to debunk spiritualist mediums and psychics. He even wrote a book about it, called A Magician Among the Spirits. He was a member of the Scientific American Committee, offering cash prizes to anyone who could demonstrate psychic abilities under the scrutiny of scientific observers. Houdini would debunk mediums by wearing elaborate disguises and infiltrating seances, where tricks of the trade could easily be exposed by one with such knowledge and illusions as Houdini possessed. But where did Houdini obtain this knowledge of illusion? And what drove him to such great lengths in his efforts to disprove psychics, mediums, and spiritualists? He was born in Budapest, Hungary, March 24, 1874, as Eric Weiss, the son of a rabbi and one of seven children. His family immigrated to the United States and settled in Wisconsin. Eric began to pursue an interest in magic, as his stage name, Eric Weiss, became Harry Houdini by adding an I to the last name of his idol, French magician Robert Houdin. Legend has it that young Houdini was apprenticed to a locksmith where he learned to assemble and take apart locks with his eyes closed. At 17 years old, Harry Houdini left his family to pursue his career in magic. Assisted by his little brother Theodore, Houdini began appearing in New York beer halls, theaters, museums, platforms next to snake charmers, fire eaters, and human oddities. They traveled as far west as Chicago, where the Brothers Houdini did quite well during the 1893 World's Fair. In 1894, while performing at Coney Island in Brooklyn, New York, Houdini met a performer named Bess, and they were married quickly before she joined him on stage to become the husband-wife act known as the Houdinis. For the rest of Harry's career, Bess worked as his stage assistant. Yet, Houdini began 1899 adrift and discouraged. He hadn't made much of a name for himself and was trying to make a living by doing card tricks and escaping from handcuffs. He was also dead broke. A year earlier, he had attempted to sell his entire act. But there were no takers. When we come back, the great Houdini finds success. Right here on Our American Stories.
We continue the story of the great Harry Houdini, who at this point had found moderate success, but hadn't yet become famous. His big break came in 1899 when he met manager Martin Beck in St. Paul, Minnesota, who convinced Houdini to concentrate on his escape acts. He then toured Europe, and his show was an immediate success. His salary rose to $300 per week. With his newfound wealth, he purchased a dress said to have been made for Queen Victoria. He then arranged for a grand reception where he presented his mother in the dress to all of their relatives. Houdini said it was the happiest day of his life. In 1904, he returned to the United States and bought a house for $25,000 in New York City. Harry Houdini had arrived, but his popularity was just beginning. Joshua Jay is a successful magician and respected Harry Houdini expert who joins us from the Contemporary Jewish Museum of San Francisco. All right, so let's talk a little bit about Houdini in a metaphorical sense. Who is Houdini? Houdini is five foot three. He's considered at this time period an outsider, Hungarian. He's an immigrant at a time when more immigrants were coming into the country than ever before. He's a minority, he's Jewish. So already you have a lot of things that people in that time viewed as stacked against you. He was an outsider, he wasn't thought of as American. And yet, somehow, he became America's first superstar. And he really was, that's not a, really even a debatable statement. He was America's first superstar because although there were people who were famous actors on the stage and later in silent pictures, they were famous for portraying other people, other powerful people. Houdini was famous for who he was. And who was he? He's this small Jewish immigrant, but chains can't hold him. He can escape from anything. That's an unbelievable metaphor given the time period. This isn't a time when most people are feeling repressed. Most people are feeling like there's a ceiling to how high they can rise. Here's a man without education, without any money. It's the ultimate rags to riches story. From 1907 and throughout 1910, Houdini performed with great success in the United States. He freed himself from jails, handcuffs, chains, ropes, and straitjackets, often while hanging from a rope inside of a street audience or out in front of a major newspaper for the extra publicity. Because of imitators, Houdini put his handcuff act behind him in 1908 and began escaping from a locked, water-filled milk can. Here again is Joshua Jay. Houdini was largely known for his escapes, but truthfully, most of his escapes were publicity stunts. They were done outside in harbors to get people to come to his magic shows. So this is why he would be seen upside down with a straitjacket or doing underwater escapes, bridge jumps. But in 1908, he had a brilliant idea to bring the major escapes to the stage. And this was the one that he brought. This is the milk can escape. It's an original Houdini illusion, and this is the original milk can. He would go inside the can, so only his head was emerged. And then he would do something brilliant. He would say to everybody in the audience, I have here the biggest stopwatch in the world. And he would bring out a big clock. And he would say, I want all of you to help me warm up my lungs by holding your breath for a minute with me. And he would get everybody in the audience to hold their breath. The timer would start, and he would go submerge himself into the can. Everybody tries to hold their breath. 30 seconds go by, and they learn it's hard. He comes up after a minute, they kick the can, and, and now it's brilliant, because what has he done? 
He hasn't shown you that what he's doing is impossible like most magicians. He's shown you that what he's doing is difficult and real. And that is a way that everybody, remember, even if there were 3,000 people in the crowd, could understand and identify on a very intimate level the real danger that he was attempting. Here again is magician Joshua Jay with the details on how exactly the milk can illusion worked. So this is how the illusion would work. He would say, after a moment of meditation, I will now hold my breath much longer. And he would resubmerge. Six assistants would place the top on the can and then lock the six padlocks on the side. A small curtain was placed around it. This was to protect the secret of his illusion, which remains a secret to this day. And then the clock would start ticking. After a minute, almost everybody in the audience couldn't hold their breath. After two minutes, the skeptics were scared. At the three minute mark, the theater manager would come out with an ax in his hand, looking very confused like this had never happened before. And of course, it happened every night, the same exact way. This is Houdini's brilliance with orchestrating a play and playing with your emotions. At the four minute mark, everybody in the audience was shouting, mercy, mercy for Mr. Houdini. And just as he was about to break open that can with an ax, Houdini would emerge from behind the curtain, soaking wet to thunderous applause. They ate it up, they loved it. Then they'd whisk away the curtain and the padlocks were still locked. It was as if he melted through the side. Now just because this was an illusion, it doesn't mean it wasn't truly dangerous. Joshua Jay describes one event where it cost an imitator everything. A Houdini imitator named Janesta attempted the milk can escape in 1930, four years after Houdini's death. But what Janesta didn't know is that as his crew was unloading the can, they dropped it. Now we don't know how Houdini did it, but we do know that Janesta did it with a trap door lid, a lid that even when locked, you could escape through. When they dented the can, they stopped the method of escape. The trap door wouldn't open. Janesta didn't know this until he was underwater inside the can with the padlocks locked. No way to shout for help, no way to signal what had happened. It took his wife, who was watching the trick from the wings, three minutes before she realized something had gone wrong. She ushered all the assistants in to help unlock the can. But of course, remember, the way the trick is supposed to work, they never have to unlock the padlocks. They couldn't remember which keys went to which locks. So they got mixed up and they lost another precious minute. By the time they unlocked the can, they opened it, Janesta lived only long enough so that they could explain to him how he had been killed. Harry Houdini had a few close calls himself over the years. Being buried alive was one of the most dangerous stunts that the magician ever pulled off. Assistants shackled and covered Houdini with earth six feet deep. Trying to dig his way out, he soon became exhausted and panicked. While calling for help, his hand finally broke the surface of the earth, and he passed out. In his personal diary, Houdini wrote that it was a very dangerous escape and that the weight of the earth is killing. Houdini's daredevil behavior wasn't just for the stage, but very much a part of who he was. In 1909, he became fascinated with aviation and purchased a 60-horsepower French biplane for $5,000. Houdini made his first flight near Hamburg, Germany on November 26, 1909. Just six years after the first flight of the Wright brothers, some reports say that Houdini was the 25th person to ever fly an airplane. 
At a time when air travel was highly experimental, this was truly another death-defying act to add to his repertoire. Houdini was also officially recognized as the first person to ever make a controlled flight in Australia by the Australian Aerial League. Harry Houdini, the great magician and handcuff king, arrives at Vickers Rest, 30 miles from Melbourne, with his international brigade, his American wife, car, and chauffeur, Brassic, his French mechanic, and French Wazen biplane, purchased through a German aviator in Germany to make history in Australia. His diary records, On my first trial flight, just after getting off the ground, I quickly flopped back to Earth. I smashed machine and broke propeller all to... It is interesting to note that this box kite type airplane evolved from the box kite gliders built and flown by Hargrave of Sydney, Australia in 1893 and became a model for French airplanes for many years. A trophy was presented to Houdini for Australia's first airplane flight. Just a few years later, on July 17, 1913, Houdini's mother, Cecilia Weiss, died after suffering a stroke. When news of her death reached Houdini, who was performing in Copenhagen, he fainted. It took Houdini several days to make it back to New York. The family delayed burial against Jewish custom just so Houdini could have one last look at his mother. Every day for a year he visited his mother's grave and every night at 15 minutes past midnight, the instant of her death. He lay flat on the ground, his arms embracing her grave, his face pressed close to the earth. There, he talked to her, begging her to let him know her last words. The great Harry Houdini, magician, handcuff king, jailbreaker, escape artist, daredevil, was painfully bound by his mother's death. When we come back, can Houdini escape the grasp of depression? This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and for all that we do, by the way, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Stories about everything, and in that last segment we heard about how Houdini was the 25th person to fly in the air just years after the Wright brothers did. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and listen to David McCullough for the hour talking about the Wright brothers, his terrific new book, The Wright Brothers, or not so new, but new if you haven't read it, and you can hear the whole story at Our American Network. Dot org. Just type the Wright Brothers in there, and you'll hear David McCullough walk us through, and all of us through, one of the great stories of American life. And now we return and continue with the epic tale of the great Harry Houdini, where he was suffering greatly over the loss of his mother. After the death of his mother, the great Houdini was in the throes of depression. The story from here usually goes that after his mother died, Houdini attended seances in the hopes to communicate with her. 
and that all he found was fraud. He then set out to expose fraudulent mediums and launched into a new wave of his career as an anti-spiritualism crusader and debunker. It's a good story. The trouble is, it's just not true. The notion that his mother's death led directly to his anti-spiritualism crusade has grown to become one of the most popular Houdini myths. It would be 10 years before Houdini unmasked his first medium. The true genesis of Houdini's anti-spiritualism crusade is rooted in his friendship with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, author and creator of Sherlock Holmes. After World War I, spiritualism became extremely popular. Arthur Conan Doyle, who lost his son in the war, became a passionate champion of the movement. Serpents and spiders, tail of a rat, call in the spirits wherever they're at. Although Houdini insisted that spiritualist mediums employed trickery, Doyle became convinced that Houdini himself possessed supernatural powers. Here's the voice of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle from a recording in 1930 where he describes his view of spiritualism. In 1887, some curious psychic experiences came my way. And especially, I was impressed by the fact of telepathy, which I proved for myself by experiments with a friend. The question then arose, if two incarnate minds could communicate, is it possible for a discarnate one to communicate with one that is still in the body? For more than 20 years, I examined the evidence and came finally to the conclusion beyond all doubt that such communication was possible. I could give hundreds of illustrations to prove my point. But I can only refer you to the literature of the subject. The full importance of the matter did not come home to me until the war, when all the world was asking, where are our dead boys? And getting such unsatisfactory answers, both from the churches and from science. Then it was that my wife and I felt that our knowledge on the subject was of enormous importance, and that we could answer this universal question. While on the beach one day, Sir Arthur informed Houdini that his wife, Lady Doyle, had developed the power of mediumship herself and was sensing that Houdini's deceased mother wished to communicate with him. Privately, Bess Houdini had warned her husband that Lady Doyle had been peppering her with questions about his relationship with his mother just the day before. Nevertheless, Houdini agreed to the seance. Wrap on a table. It's time to respond. Send us a message from somewhere beyond. During the seance, Houdini's mother appeared to return through automatic writing, a process in which Lady Doyle transcribed words from beyond onto a notepad. Immediately, Houdini could see problems. The pages were in English, a language his mother did not speak. She also made the sign of a cross on the top of the first page. Not something you would expect from the wife of a rabbi. But Houdini concealed his doubts and thanked the Doyles for their seance. Sir Arthur told the press that Houdini had been converted to the religion of spiritualism. Harry Houdini countered publicly that he had not been converted and that he was more skeptical than ever. This raised the question of whether Houdini thought the Doyles were frauds. The public exchange put a strain on the friendship and Harry Houdini began to incorporate the debunking of spiritualism into his stage performances. There are those who would have you believe that they can foresee the future, heal wounds, talk to the dead. Talk to the dead. 
I've met hundreds of them. Table tappers, trumpet blowers, ectoplasmic saints. They'd rather we exercise our fantasies than our brains. I've invested years reaching across those psychic gulfs. You'd think I wouldn't if I could. I ache to believe. I wanted to talk to one single soul. How hard could that be? She died with one thought on her lips. For me. There are 20,000 medians practicing today, and none have spoken those words. And I warrant for my $10,000 reward, two-thirds of them have tried. If spirits are genuine, you think they'd warn us? There'd have been no passengers on the Titanic. There'd have been no deaths in the San Francisco quake. If ghosts, if ghosts can inhabit any self-proclaimed Madame Zaza, why not the lower forms of life? Why doesn't your, your poodle whisper warnings about the next train wreck? Or your, your Persian for warn or murder? Why? Animals don't have bank accounts. Here again is magician Joshua Jay with his perspective on Houdini's quest to challenge spiritualism. So, you're Houdini. By this time, you've achieved more fame than probably was ever even thought possible for a magician. He's one of the most famous figures alive, but something's happened. He's getting older, right? He's famous for being a dashing, young, immigrant magician, making these escapes with young assistants, showing off the physicality of his body, but now he's bordering 50 years old. He's not quite as quick on his feet, and he realizes that the last part of his career will not be as dynamic physically as the first part. So what do you do? Where do you go from here? It's the same question great actors and great singers ask when they achieve so much, but now have to reinvent themselves. Well, if you're Houdini, you go on a crusade against an emerging religion, spiritualism. And I call spiritualism a religion on purpose. It's looked at today as a cult or sort of a phase in history. But at that time period, people believed in spiritualism as a faith. And he was very close to his mother, as I've told you. When she died, he wanted more than anything, like all of us do when we lose somebody, to get in contact with her. And there was a particular incident in which he was told that he would, and he was told he had made contact with his mother. And it was a scam. He realized very quickly that the same techniques he was using to deceive the public, they were using to deceive people for real. And he went on a crusade against spiritualism. When we return, the infamous death of the great Harry Houdini, plus the only known audio recording of his voice in existence. This is Our American Stories. Give us a hint by ringing a bell. 
And we continue with the closing segment on the life of the great Harry Houdini. And now we hear from famous magicians of our time about the life of this epic entertainer. But first, we hear the voice of the escape master himself. On October 29th, 1914, the audio was recorded on an Edison wax cylinder and is now the only known vocal recording of Harry Houdini to exist. The recording captures Harry Houdini delivering an introduction to his Chinese water torture cell escape. The audio allows us to hear Houdini's measured cadence and careful enunciation. street performer and magician David Blaine tells the story of a befriended librarian at an early age who introduced him to a book that would set the course for his highly successful career in magic. It was called The Secrets of Houdini. You know, at the age of five, when you see a man chained up sideways to the side of a building, a straitjacket looking really scary, you don't forget that. And I started looking through the book and I started seeing all these amazing things that he was doing. And what I liked about what he was doing is you could very easily tell from the pictures that he was doing things that were real. So it wasn't like an illusion or a magic trick, even though he employed that into what he did. But what the guy was doing was clearly real and physical and dangerous. And it was the things that I think are amazing to this day. Chris Angel is another highly successful and popular magician and illusionist who was directly influenced by the great Harry Houdini. He was more than a magician or an escape artist. He was a provocateur. He was somebody who was popular culture. He was, by all means, the biggest star of his era. And um, I think part of his success came because he understood what the public wanted and even more so understood how to create that interest. I always said that if you cut Houdini with a knife, blood wouldn't come out. Press would. He was a master at that. And uh, 
that inspired me. Magician, illusionist, and comedian Penn Jillette is famous for his work as half of Penn & Teller. There's a fascinating thing about Houdini, uh, deeply fascinating, in that I can't think. Try to maybe sort of put Bob Dylan in this category, uh, but it's very hard to think. You can maybe sort of try to try to sneak in Picasso, try to sneak in Miles Davis, but trying to find someone who in their career made a philosophical or moral change while they were famous. Um, someone who has come out and redefined themselves in a moral way. Houdini became hugely famous as an escape artist, saying to a nation of immigrants, a man born in Budapest, and then standing. I mean, there's a picture of Houdini in, in Times Square hanging upside down in a straitjacket with a whole sea of men in hats. The picture makes me cry every time. And then Houdini's publicity statement, <laughs> I defy the jails of the world to hold me. I mean, can you imagine a more heavy, more, I mean, t- from a rabbi's son from Budapest. I mean, is there anything more uh, uh, purely American than that? He gets to be a superstar as an escape artist. He gets himself into dictionaries as an escape artist. We look back on the 20th century in 100 years and look at um, entertainment. The only two people in the running for being remembered in the 20th century are Elvis Presley and Houdini. And as time goes on, Houdini's winning. When Harry Houdini and his entourage arrived at the Garrick Theater in Detroit, Michigan on October 24th, 1926, he was running a fever. Two days earlier, Houdini had been resting in his dressing room prior to a show in Montreal when a college student named J. Gordon Whitehead approached him. It's difficult to determine exactly what happened from here, as accounts from eyewitnesses are slightly conflicting. However, the general story seems to be that Whitehead asked Houdini if the claim that he could withstand any punch to the abdomen had any truth to it. Houdini assured him that it was true and gave him permission to see for himself. Whitehead immediately took several jabs at Houdini's midsection while the magician supposedly didn't have a chance to prepare for the blows from over-exuberant J. Gordon Whitehead. The punches inflicted more pain than Houdini anticipated, yet he insisted that the evening's scheduled performance must go on. And now, ladies and gentlemen, as you read in the newspapers this morning, Houdini has been challenged to liberate himself from a steel straitjacket. He began the performance with several vanishing acts, culminating with making a woman disappear and conjuring a flower shrub in her place. He made it through the first act, but his condition worsened and he was forced to finish the show. Houdini finally gave in and agreed to go to Grace Hospital in Detroit to have an emergency appendectomy. Doctors performed the surgery, but the damage was already done. Harry Houdini held on for about a week at Grace Hospital, but finally succumbed on October 31st, 1926. He was 52 years old. Which is where our story ends, as it began, on the night of October 31st, 1936, on the rooftop of the Nickenbacher Hotel in Hollywood, California, 10 years to the day after he died. The great Houdini made a pact with his wife, Bess, that he would make every attempt to communicate with her as a spirit from beyond the grave after he was dead. So, 
Every year on Halloween, the widow of Harry Houdini held a seance for him the night of his departure for the next 10 years without ever making contact. In this, the 10th and final seance, gold invitations were sent to 300 guests, reporters, and Hollywood elite. Lights as far away as New York were dimmed, and one minute of silence was observed before the ceremony reached its climax at the final plea for the great Harry Houdini to reveal himself to the world. was in. The great Houdini had made his greatest escape. From the shackles that bound him to this world, to that inevitable escape that we all make, the story of the great Harry Houdini will live on forever. This is our American Stories. And great job as always, and that's Jesse Edwards and my goodness, when he hits it good, he hits it out of the park. And just listening to that, what a stunt Harry Houdini created for all those liars and all those false prophets. He exposed them, even in his grave, setting them up for the kill. A master at the big event. And by the way, what an American story. Born in 1894, Budapest, Hungary, son of a rabbi, a Jew, and outsiders, outsiders in his new country. And he becomes the biggest star there ever was. And again, it was pointed out early. He didn't play someone else like the Valentinos of the early movie world. Houdini played himself to the end. Provocateur. And he understood, as one person said, what the public wanted. The life of Harry Houdini. What a story. Here on Our American Stories. And to listen to all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And October is Down Syndrome Awareness Month. And for it, our own Alex Cortez attended something called a buddy walk, which are community walks alongside Americans who have Down Syndrome to promote acceptance of them and their inclusion into society. It was created by the National Down Syndrome Society in 1995, and there are now over 250 of them across the country. And this buddy walk in our town of Oxford, Mississippi, that Alex attended was organized by a local support group called 21 United. And here's Alex's conversation with a father there named Brad Armstrong. Okay, so I've got three kids. Uh, They're now 15, 13, and five. Aubrey is my Down syndrome child. She's 13. So it was an adjustment. Having a two-year-old at home and kind of thinking you have it you have it licked. You're used to what the, you know, what the what the average kid is like. Uh, you, so you have you think kid number two. All right, second verse, same as the first. We're going to keep going, and uh, and you know we had had all the, the normal tests and everything just to make sure. Hey, is my baby healthy? Yeah. Everything that they really recommended, and uh, everything came back negative. And you know, and she was born, and at birth, I didn't know, but my wife is a nurse practitioner. Okay. She could tell real quick that something was off couldn't quite tell what it was and uh, just the you know physical appearance of the baby and uh, eyes a little farther set apart and things like that some of the some of the physical characteristics that you might mm-hmm. think with you might associate with down syndrome and uh i was clueless it's like perfect you know i'm counting i'm counting fingers and toes i'm making sure everything's in the right place and we're good to go Did you and actually count fingers and toes oh yeah absolutely i've had three kids i don't think i've ever counted fingers and toes <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, you, you make sure everything's in place and we're good to go and had no idea. And then, you know, the doctor came in and told us and said, look, we've noticed some things and, you know, kind of sat us down and had a heart to heart and said, your your child has Down syndrome. And it was, it was an intense two or three days of, you know, <laughs> supporting your wife and walking outside and crying with your dad for 30 minutes and then walking back inside like nothing happened and supporting your wife. So you and weren't crying in front of her? Trying not to, yeah. no. Uh, I think the biggest part of the faith piece is the acceptance piece that, you know, you, you have your two or three days of saying, why me or why us? And, and then you realize, yeah, I'm not in control of that. So I can sit here and be bitter or grumpy or whatever but I I think that's where the faith piece really probably comes in more than anything and it's just understanding that hey this is a this is a big thing that you're not in control of so let's adapt let's roll let's keep moving in a positive direction and and I think I became a Down syndrome expert in a month and a half you know you read everything you could get your hands on and you know it was before the days of the the Google and whatnot, you know. You, this you, was you, before the days of Google? Oh, she's 13, so, I mean, they, they had it, but it's not the, the monster that it is today. So yeah. you really had to go do research, and I, re- I, you know, bought a lot of books and read a lot of books and checked books out from the library. And oh, wow. We had people uh, from a society a lot like 21 United that dropped in when we were there, and it, it's one of those things you don't really want to hear all that information at that time because you, your child's only two or three days old, but... They gave us this book of, hey, things to be aware of, you know, things to, when you go out in the community and you start your kid in school, you start getting therapy for your kids or whatever it is, you know, these are things you need to be aware of. And I I think that was very valuable for for us. I think at that particular time, we didn't want to hear it. You know, you're not not so much in denial, but you're just still trying to adjust 
But I think that's probably the best thing that ever happened to us is somebody gave us a book and gave us this information and said, hey, if you have questions, you can reach out. And I think that's what, you know, something like this is for, to raise community awareness to start, but also to kind of spread the message for people who have a kid who has special needs of any sort. But, you know, this particular event's Down Syndrome specific. And let them know that they have somebody in the community, that they have questions. You know, I've, my daughter's 13. A lot of the kids that are involved with this particular chapter are younger. So we've been through things that they're about to go through. So, you know, but you know, we, we had that when we, we're originally from Jackson. So we okay. were members of the Central Mississippi yeah, Down Syndrome Society. Bigger town, you had a bigger selection of people who were, you know, members that you could go to. So you did have that, you know, kind of like I'm able to answer questions for them now if they have it because I've got an older child. We had that as well. And, you know, there were times you didn't use it all the time, but it was nice to know that if you did have questions, you had someone that was there that you could get a response from. And maybe at least, you know, maybe it's just to tell you you're barking up the wrong tree. You're going to let that go. You can keep fighting it, but it's not going to change. This is what you need to focus on. You know, there's a percentage of these kids that have parents that really are active and fight and try to get everything they can for them. And But there's a large percentage of kids with Down syndrome or with special needs that don't really have that parental, you know, fight to go get things for them. They kind of accept things just as they are. And I think that's what these groups are also about is to to push the boundaries, to push for more, you know, whether it's rights or anything like that. I mean, we haven't really had to fight for that. But uh, the, the community acceptance here in Oxford has been fantastic. I mean, it's really, really good. I, our our daughter, again, 13 years old, but she's kind of like a, a superstar in town. We can't go anywhere to eat without knowing someone who wants to come to the table and say, "Hey," or not to you, or yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't even introduce myself as Brad. I'm just Aubrey's dad now, and that's they're like, "Oh, Aubrey, I, I know her. Yeah." So she, she goes to my school. Normal, typically able classroom. And- yes. So she's she's pulled out a little bit, um, but she's mainstreamed as much as we can. We've yeah. tried to mainstream her. Uh, when we were in Jackson, we were fortunate enough to get her in. Uh, First Presbyterian Day School, who had a Down Syndrome-specific class. And there were, uh, I want to say, maybe eight, nine kids in it total. But I think that one of the things that I noticed about that, that I didn't think about going into, I thought that it was was a great program for these kids with special needs that all kind of had the same disability, and it was going to be a really good program for them, which it was. But I think what I noticed on the back end of it, after having been in it a little while, is how much it affected the other kids that went to that school. The normal kids that interacted with them daily. You know, growing up when I was coming up, a special needs kid was kind of pulled out of the fray and removed, and we had no interaction with them. So, you know, the tendency for the kids, the normal kid in school that doesn't see that is to think, oh, well, that's weird and different, and, you know, and it's just so much different in today's society. And I think that's because people have fought for this to, hey, we need to do it a different way. Maybe the way of just secluding them over here in this corner of the school is not good anymore. And when we come back more on the Buddy Walk in our little town of Oxford, Mississippi, National Down Syndrome Awareness Month, and we were just listening to Brad Armstrong's story, his superstar daughter's story, Aubrey, here on Our American Stories.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we continue our conversation with Alex Cortez and Brad Armstrong. It changes your life. And in many ways, it changes your life. You've got more things, more responsibilities. You know, she's likely going to have to live with us her whole life. You know, so it changes the, the aspirations of, hey, I'm going to have kids and they're going to be with me for 18 years. And then they're going to go to college and then they're going to be out on their own. Right. Uh, you, you have to kind of let that go a little bit and say, hey, you know, I want her. Hopefully that's a problem we get to face, you know, where she's able to go out and live you know, on her own as much as she can. And we want that to happen, but there's a chance she's going to live with us for her whole life. So, um, I've met some parents who say, um, that they are going to go to college. They are going to get married. At least have those expect, you know, such a high bar that it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Obviously a lot of other parents say, yeah, they're going to live with me the rest of my life. And a lot of them mm-hmm. have, I've heard from many people, their greatest concern is, you know, making sure that you live one day longer than that child or one yeah. hour longer that child and making sure that's you know someone's there for them is, yeah. their, is their greatest fear in life so how do you kind of deal with all this and your expectations so she's one of three kids i think you do the best job of raising those other two kids in a way to understand you know that not everybody is the same as you that you know we've taught our daughters that that aubrey's brain works differently now i treat her just like my other two kids <laughs> I know when, that she knows when she's messing up, and she'll do it on purpose. But other people will give her a pass and say, oh, well, she's just, you know, that's Aubrey. Just let that go. And I have to hold her to a strict line for her. But I really also do that for my other kids to let them know that, hey, this, she can think for herself. She can do for herself. She does know. But at some point, she's your sister. And like her older sister, uh, Ann Michael, she's very protective. She's like, you know, the mama hen. She's going to make sure she's taken care of. Now, she can fight with her, but nobody else can, right? So it's you have to do a good job and know that, you know, I'm not in control of if I live longer than her or not. I mean, I could I could worry about that, I suppose, but I'm not in control of that. So um, I have to make sure that if I'm not here, if I'm not able to be here, that I've got other things in place to make sure that she's going to be taken care of. And I have no doubt. I, there, there are people around this community that would adopt her tomorrow. If, if they had to. No, I don't think they fully understand what that means. <laughs> and I'm not going to talk them out of it, but, you know, I have no doubt that she would be taken care of. If, if you know, if, if Holly and I weren't here tomorrow, she would be fine and the rest of my kids would be fine. And I think that's all you can do, but I don't think that's any different than any normal parent. Sure. In the end, she's a normal kid. She's different, but she's different in so many good ways. I wish that I had her attitude. I, w- I mean, she will come up to you. She'll shake your hand. She'll tell you she loves your shirt, ask you your name. I mean, she is literally the most personable person I have ever met. And I've met a lot of people. She's unreal. She, You've heard the phrase, you know, I don't know what it is, but she's got it. <laughs> yep. You'll see. She's walking it. Hi. Hey, Aubrey. I'm Alex. Nice to meet you, Nice to meet you. Your dad's been praising you a lot. He's singing your praises. Yeah, I was doing something really cool. I mean, that's that fills you up with pride as a parent. You'd love for I'd love to be that way. I'd love for all my kids to be that way. Honestly, uh, I was the shy kid in high school that never wanted to talk to people. Even if I knew you real well, I wasn't going to open up that much. Uh, a lot of people thought, you know, hey, this guy's stuck up or a snob, and I was just shy. I literally just didn't want to talk to people because I didn't know what to say. I was always going to call them the wrong name. I'm horrible <laughs> with names, but in having her. Aubrey has opened up my personality because I don't have any option 
if she's there, she's talking to everyone. So then I have to interact all the time. So me today versus me 13 years ago, complete different a complete different person. I mean, I, as far as personable, talking to people, going up and meeting people, yeah. I'm a lot more apt to do that. Now, part of that's because I'm older and I'm growing up and I've worked in business and you learn these things, but part of it's because I didn't have an option. And she's supposed to be the different one. You're the one right? different. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Oh, I mean, there, there are things about her personality that if I could just take and implant in myself, I would do it tomorrow. You know, we've met so many people we never would have met if we, you know, didn't have her. We have relationships with people that we never would have had were it not for her. The De Leons came to mind. They're a family that we met basically through our our nanny, our, our babysitter slash nanny. Uh, she worked for us all the time. She was actually a student teacher at the school that we went to in Jackson. And then she started coming over to the house after school. She started coming over to the house after school and keeping the girls for a little bit, and then she'd keep them whenever we'd go to an event or something like that. But she ended up coming over a lot. Like, even when we didn't necessarily need her, need her we wanted to kind of keep her busy and keep her because she was so good with the girls. She just she came from a really good family. They really had a heart for it, you know, taking care of special needs and being, you know, mindful of that. She was in college at Bellhaven. She played soccer at Bellhaven, but when she, in her free time, she would come help us. And so her parents come to town to watch her play soccer, and they want to meet us. It's the first thing they want to do because all they've done is heard about Aubrey. And they're just fantastic people as well. And they, you know, now they come to town. They're coming, they actually are going to come up here and they want to have, you know, time with the girls. The, uh, Aubrey has gone to, they're from Houston originally, and Auburn has, I mean, Aubrey has gone to Houston on uh, two or three different occasions to spend a week with them down there. Just, Holy cow. I mean, so it's, when I say she has this magnetic personality that just draws people in, it draws really good people in. And I think I've learned more about how good some of these kids are out here in the community just because of how they interact with Aubrey. That she's just this kid. Uh, you know, my, my wife works in a, a, a clinic around the corner, and she had a kid in the other day that said, hey, uh, you know, she found out, you know, the kid's a certain age and goes to this school. So she says, well, do you know Aubrey? And it's like, yeah, I know Aubrey. Well, I'm her mom. She is so fun. <laughs> I guess in the end, if we've done nothing different than just get the word out and kind of the inclusion piece of them being included in the lives and the classrooms of these normal kids, as these kids grow up and go into society, they're going to yeah, be more inclusive. And, absolutely. Yeah, the workplace needs to do a lot a lot better with integrating. And I think that starts in the classroom with the kids. Yeah. You know, the people that are in the workplace for the most part right now, when they were kids, there was exclusion. You know, you you, you segregated these kids out and you didn't have any, any interaction. So I don't think they even know how to go about trying to make that happen now, for the most part. But now, since a lot of these schools are inclusive and they do include these kids in everything, you know, as those kids grow up and go into the community... If for no other reason, they'll be used to it and they'll be more progressive and they'll try to get these kids involved. And, you know, yeah, maybe they can't do anything but be a greeter at a restaurant or, you know, maybe they're limited in certain, you know, facets, but they can make it happen. And they'll understand, okay, she's got limitations, but this is this is something we need to do. You get concerned about being a dad in terms of uh, spending your time with your other two kids. So this is something else I've heard. You know, that yeah. it's, it's easy to let the one child take up all your time and not pay enough attention to your other kids. You know, it's, it, yeah, yeah, that's something that you worry about because, you know, they don't have events, you know, all the time to say, congratulations on your normal child. 
right? You, you have events like this to raise awareness for your Down syndrome child or your special needs child, but they don't have a congratulations on having a wonderful 15-year-old event. They just don't have those, right? <laughs> so all the events, not all the events, but a lot of the events that we go to are celebrating Aubrey. You know, my oldest goes to things that are celebrating all the kids, which is, again, still fantastic, and it's at a high school event or a dance or something like that. But it's not, hey, congratulations on being you. You are such a great person. So, yeah, you worry about things like that. Are they going to take it the right way? But And you have to have occasional conversations, you know, I, even with my five-year-old, especially her right now because my other one's been through it enough. We've had conversations, and she understands. Yeah. Um, but my five-year-old doesn't understand why we're always doing something for Aubrey. And, we, you know, we have to start laying those seeds. Of, you know, now you're five-year-old. You can understand a little bit more that, you know, Aubrey thinks differently. And this is... This is how her brain works, and there are other kids that are like her, and you are so blessed to have her in the family because you're going to learn a lot. You know, you, you try to get those life lessons through generically. Like, I don't schedule a time to have those talks, but when a comment's made or something, I try to take that time to say, hey, sorry, you know, none of us really, you know, choose that we're going to have a daughter because as great as my daughter is, she's like any other kid she has tantrums and she can't control that sometime and she's got different medications that she takes and sometimes those medications wear off at the most inopportune time and you kind of have to deal with that and it affects mood and all that kind of stuff so uh you have to take all that into account and we don't choose that but you try to make sure that five-year-old just understands that down the road this is something like i'm honestly think my other two kids are going to be so much better off long range because they have lived this, because they've had to take things. They always have to think, do I need to take her into account? Do I need to think about her? What's going on with this? And, you know, they get to be kids. It's not like they're instant adults. But they're things that they have to take into consideration where other people don't. Well said, and that's Brad Armstrong again, his wife Holly, and Alex bump into them during a buddy walk here in our town of Oxford, Mississippi. And that's the Down Syndrome Awareness Group. And all month long is Down Syndrome Awareness Month. Across this country and here on Our American Stories, too. Brad's story, Holly's story, and their superstar daughter, Aubrey. All of their stories here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and now it's time for our This Day in History segment, brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, the best place in America to learn about all of the things that matter in life, including baseball. Hillsdale even has a terrific talk by Charles Learson about how the myth of Ty Cobb being an awful racist couldn't be further from the truth. The man was more enlightened than almost anyone of the era, and you can listen to it at Our American Network. Org. And we're talking about baseball because we're in the thick of the Fall Classic, the World Series. And on this day in history in 2010, rookie Madison Bumgarner made his World Series debut, pitching eight shutout innings for his San Francisco Giants. 
becoming the youngest pitcher to make a scoreless start of six innings or more in World Series history, taking the Giants en route to win their first World Series in 56 years. And this is Madison Bumgarner's story. If you are what you say you are, a superstar, then have no fear, the camera's here, and the microphones, and they wanna know, oh, oh, oh. A superstar, or better yet, a modern-day Paul Bunyan. He wore jeans and boots to his own wedding, and yet she married him, and they're still married. Even after he gave her a Holstein Bull for her birthday. He's considered one of the greatest Major League Baseball pitchers of all time, and certainly has one of the greatest nicknames of all time, Mad Bum. Now there's nothing as sweet as Mad Bum's high heat. Some might say it's derived from his bum, which is mad. He wears jockey. That ball is hit high and deep to left field. Adios! A grand slam! But his mother might say otherwise, that it comes from her, from the name she gave him. Baumgartner's third career homer, and this one was a grand salami, and it was a big fly. And others might say his sweaty bum earned it from all of his madness on the field. Bumgarner delivers. Swing and a miss. Swing and a miss. He struck it out. And that's the shutout for Bumgarner. Another masterpiece. In 2010, the San Francisco Giants called him up from the minor league halfway through the season, landing in the World Series in this very first year, and became the youngest left-handed pitcher to throw eight Scoreless innings in a World Series. A Ram power player of the game. Who else? Madison Bumgarner. Struck out six. Allowed only three hits to the top hitting team in the majors this season. And the Giants would win it all for the first time since 1954. This kid's fearless, man. I've said it many, many times. He doesn't have a lot of, doesn't seem like he's ever nervous. Um, he got to the field today just joking around. Doesn't act like he's got much of a personality, but he really does in the clubhouse. And they'd win it again in 2012. And what a job tonight by the 23-year-old left-hander, Madison Bumgarner. Seven shutout innings. And 2014. five years and their hero Madison Bumgarner after winning games one and five as a starter against the Kansas City Royals Madison Bumgarner comes out of the bullpen in game seven to close the game the gate has opened at the Giants bullpen and Madison Bumgarner makes his entrance here in game seven the Giants leading three to two and close he did pitching five scoreless innings and Bumgarner has firmly etched his name on the all-time World Series record books as one of the greatest World Series pitchers the game has ever seen. 
The San Francisco Chronicle reported, I this. Like the gunslinger in a spaghetti western, Bumgarner unstrapped his arm from its holster. Now we start. And the opposition faded away into the night. A man who has broken countless records and been named World Series MVP, you might expect to be partying, traveling, or throwing around money. But no, not Mad Bum. The best thing for, for me and the wife was just getting home, seeing the family, and, and just, just relaxing, that's it. And listen to him here after he won Sports Illustrated's Sportsman of the Year Award. The Sports Illustrated Sportsman of the Year Award uh, for one, that's that's probably the most humbling award that that I think an athlete can get, um, you know, because it's not just in your sport; it's in all the sports. And uh, you know, when you see the list of the previous winners, it just you know it kind of rocks your world a little bit, brings you back uh, to where you need to be. But just truly blessed to to have the opportunity for that. Madison Bumgarner is a simple man, a humble man, and shaped by his humble roots. So says Sports Illustrated's Tom Verducci upon visiting his hometown. You know, I thought I knew Madison Bumgarner pretty well, but it really wasn't until I saw where he's from. Caldwell County, North Carolina, foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains. And that's when I really understood what he's all about. You know, it's just a slow, easy life. There's not a whole lot of fast pace uh, living around here, which, you know, I enjoy that. I remember interviewing him during the series against the Cardinals. Give me your idea of a perfect day in the offseason when baseball's over. He said, well, when the sun comes up, or maybe a little bit before, I like to go out and feed the animals. That's Madison Bumgarner. You know, being out kind of away from, away from everything and slow things down a little bit, I think it's good, especially for, for a baseball player or an athlete in general. You know, I feel like, you know, the road that you go down uh, makes you who you are. And, you know, I've uh, been fortunate to, to go down a pretty good road. Verducci went on to write, He wants success without spoils, achievement without attention, and the ball without excuses. Traits that are rare in an era when self-promotion defines too many athletes. And that's probably because he's more interested in promoting someone else than himself. At 16 years old, Madison Bumgarner wrote, My short-term goal as a person is to witness an activity of Jesus in my life. And my long-term goal is for people when they look at me to see something in me about Jesus. He throws fire from the mountain as he guns that batter down. Mama's prayers have been mountains since his young feet hit the ground. But sometimes when folks look at Madison Bumgarner, they see something else. Jockey underwear. Here he is with late night host, Jimmy Fallon. Mad Bum. Yeah. <laughs> so, you brought me a gift. This is very thoughtful. I did, you know, I was excited to bring you. See, it's a normal thing for a guy to give another guy on we've never TV. Met. We've never met? Absolutely, yeah. It's what is it? Perfect, I got some, some underwear here for you. The Mad Bum underwear. A pair of jockey. underwear? Yeah. This is fantastic. <laughs> Jockey, supporting greatness since 1876. Six foot 
And there you have it, another This Day in History, Madison Bumgarner. And by the way, ESPN, I've seen so many profiles on this man, and they always leave the faith out. I don't know why they do that. When it's not there, keep it out. But when it's there, my goodness, listen to the note he writes to himself when he's 16 years old and informs his whole life. This Day in History in 2010, Madison Bumgarner made World Series history, pitching eight shutout innings for his San Francisco Giants. This Day in History, as always, brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you at hillsdale.edu for their free and terrific online courses. This is Our American Stories. our American stories and as you can tell one of the papers we love is the Wall Street Journal I sometimes think it should be called America's Journal because I think the title is a misnomer it makes people think of if you're not a Wall Street person or you're not trading or you're not some big business CEO it's not a paper for you but it is in fact my wife grabs it for me and grabs the personal journal right out of my hands which is where I like to start too and I care a lot about news and business but we love to talk to Wall Street Journal writers, and one of, our, one of our favorite topics is just how to get along in the workplace and the workplace. We talk a lot about work here on Our American Stories because Americans spend a lot of time working, and working is a really meaningful part of all of our lives. And the title of this story was The Big Benefits of a Little Small Talk. I'm going to start with the opening paragraph or two and then bring in the writer of this great piece, and that's Jennifer Wallace. It starts like this. Anyone who passes regularly through busy public spaces knows that one casualty of our obsession with digital devices has been small talk. With our eyes glued to our smartphones, fewer of us engage anymore with people whom we don't know well. But are we missing something in this loss of idle chit-chat? And that is a superb start to an excellent piece. And Jennifer, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much. You know, I had this, uh, you know, I loved talking people up. I was a, a small talker all my life. But lately, I've been always on that phone. And the other day, I had a little time to myself. I got into an elevator with four people. And you know what I did? I, I did what I promised myself I'd never do. Rather than engage those folks, I just went to my phone to pretend to be on the phone because it was easier than just talking to a stranger, Jennifer. And I thought, you weak jerk. That's what I thought to myself. <laughs> So, so talk to me about, before we get into the piece, what, what yeah. got you to, you know, you're a writer and generally the things must mull on your mind before you write about them. What personally led you to this, this space? Well, it's funny. It's a few points um, of reference that, that got me here. One was I'm a writer, so I spend a lot of time alone. Um, and I don't work in, I'm a freelance writer, so I write for the Wall Street Journal and other publications. So I work at home all day. And I found myself making small talk with people, you know, if I got a salad to go or just finding people on the sidewalk to chat with because I was deprived of conversation all day long, uh, you know, other than with my kids and my husband. Um, 
So I started finding that when I had these little bits of conversation, I would get a boost in happiness. And I thought, then I thought to my father and mother, who are now both retired, and how important small talk has become to them. And they're, you know, my dad's friends with the guy at Chipotle who makes his salad every day, and my mother's friends when she's shopping in, you know, the mall, she's friends with the saleswomen. And I thought, you know, if there's something about interacting with people in a small way um, that brings us these great boosts of happiness. And I found that if we could be more aware of it, we could harness this, uh, this, this power that we're unaware of. I mean, I think when you were in the elevator looking down at your phone, I think we do that because, one, we don't think we're going to get anything out of it, and, two, we don't think anybody else wants to talk to us. But study after study after study shows that not only do we get a boost from happiness, but that almost 99.9% of people get something out of that interaction as well. So you're very unlikely to be rejected uh, by starting up a little small talk. Yeah, and I think the problem is that so many other people are connected to their devices or have those headphones on. How do you start a conversation with somebody who's got a headset on, Jennifer? It's impossible. So uh, one of the researchers, uh, Nicholas Epley, who's up uh, at the University of Chicago, was doing these studies on small talk. Um, And one of the studies he looked at was commuters and how commuters, you know, even though we're in close proximity to each other, we often don't interact. And so he he found in his in his research that, you know, commuters who did interact got a big boost in um, in their happiness level during during that their commute. And what he decided to do was to give up his smartphone. He he saw this huge boost in happiness. He saw that people enjoyed their commutes uh, better. And so he now uses just a regular phone so that he is not pulled to that smartphone. So there's nothing else for him to do on his commute. And he said it's changed his life. You bet. And I think it would change a lot of people's life act, lives, actually. And I think, imagine writers. I think it actually can change writers' lives because so many of my writer friends say they're distracted by the, the never-ending interaction with social media. Let's talk a little bit about empathy. Before we get into yeah. some tips for people on small talk, you write a bit about empathy in this column. Talk about how small t- talk actually enhances the talent or the, the ability to empathize. Right. I think it's not just for adults, but also for kids. So often in our communities today, we are, um, we're insulated. We hang out with the same group of people who usually think the same way we do and look the same way we do. And what small talk does is it can bridge divides, the natural divides of race, of class, of interests, And being able to talk with people in a small way who are different than you, I think helps to broaden your circle of caring. And I talk in the article about uh, how small talk can actually help build empathy in children. Um, Having your children look at you, engage with the waitress who's serving your food, thanking her, asking her how her day is, thanking the bus driver, this builds, uh, you know, it shows that you don't just care about the people closest to you, your family and close friends, but it shows your children, actually, on earth, we're here to care about the people outside of our little circles. 
we're all connected. And small talk, I think, helps connect all of us. And so let's dig down uh, for Mm -hmm. people who aren't good at small talk, because I think very often we think of these things as a performance. And we're judging ourselves and thinking, well, I'm not that interesting. What do I say? How do I, I'm at a party. How do I mingle? I think most of us worry about these things. So let's talk about some tips. There's the 10, sure. five, let, there's the ten five rule. I found that fascinating. What is that all it is, about? It is fascinating. So they teach this at uh, hotel training classes uh, for people who are in the front office of hotels. And so when they see a guest coming at 10 feet away, they smile and make eye contact at five feet away, they say hello. So it just helps you gauge a little bit of, of what's appropriate. You know, you're not going to try to engage with somebody who's 10 feet away. That's too far. But when they come close to you, you know, in your inner space, that's when you can engage and just say hi. Um, if you're, you just mentioned if you're at a party. So let's say you're at a, a, a party or the holidays are coming up. Uh, find common ground. So if you're there and you don't know many people, Ask somebody else, start a conversation by saying, hi, I'm, I'm Jenny. How do you know the host? And it will prompt a story that can make it very easy for you to follow up, or they could follow up with you and say, how do you know the host? And that's an easy conversation starter. Um, if you're you know, at a networking event um, and you're, again, alone, you don't know many people, go up to somebody and say, this is my first one of these things, or I haven't been to one in a while. Do you find these useful? Do you go to a lot of these? What do, you, what do you, you know, how do you follow up after these? And just ask people questions. Being a little bit vulnerable can, you know, and looking a little candid can make the person you're talking to a little more candid back to you. I love that you say here, embrace ignorance. Uh, why, why those yeah. words? Um, well, I think a great conversation starter, especially for me as a journalist, is I start almost every conversation with a question. I and I think we can learn so much from people. And I think starting with a question, uh, you know, let's say you're on a, on a train commuting into work and you're sitting next to someone and you start talking and you find out that they work in renewable energy. That's an example I give in the article. They work in renewable energy. And you say to them, you know, I have no idea how wind power actually works. Can you tell me a little bit about that? So, learning something from these conversations. Those are authentic conversations when you can learn something and it makes small talk more meaningful. Indeed. And by the way, people are willing to open up when you actually ask them about themselves rather than worrying about yourself. And so interestingly enough, it seems like almost all the advice is to well, stop worrying about yourself, turn it outwards, and you'll be shocked at how people react to you. Uh, What about asking exciting questions? Talk about that. Yeah, so if, it, you know, instead of just um, one of the experts I spoke to say you can make only, you know, almost any conversation more interesting by taking it to the next level. So um, what the expert said, you know, if somebody says, you know, oh, it's so cold outside, you could say, you, you know, what's the coldest you've ever been? Now, this is a risky question. This is a, sort of a risky way to go. So you want to be able to read the person that you're talking to. Is this somebody who would, who, you know, one who has time to engage in a deeper conversation? So maybe you don't ask that in the elevator. Uh, but two, is this somebody, you know, who would, who might uh, be receptive to a deeper conversation? And last but not least, it's always the exit. And how do we yeah. exit gracefully? You got about 30 seconds. 
Exit gracefully. Tell us how to do this. Exit gracefully. So before we go, I'm going to add this one more tip. So sending somebody a verbal cue, instead of just saying, nice to meet you, you could say, since we only have a few more seconds, I had one more question for you. And that gives them a single signal that it's time to wrap up. Yeah, because the exit strategy is always the hardest. Well, actually, the entrance is hard and the exit's (laughs) hard. Uh, Jennifer, thanks so much for what you do at the Wall Street Journal, and thanks for this piece. Thanks so much. You bet. This is Lee Habib, the big benefits of a little small talk. Jennifer Wallace, the Wall Street Journal. And go to WSJ.com. That's WSJ.com to read this and many more great stories. Better still, subscribe to the Wall Street Journal. It's America's Journal. This is Our American Stories.